and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the audio edition of the Weekly Roundup, where we examine some of the key headlines and developments that pertain to the asset and wealth management industry across Singapore, Hong Kong, and mainland China. This episode, we are looking at developments that occurred over the week of May 3 through May 7. So let's dive in. Starting off with some overall APAC regional developments. Manulife Investment Management, the asset management arm of the Canadian insurer, believes that climate change risks, corporate governance standards, and aging populations will drive sustainable fixed income investment growth across Asia-Pacific, as reported by Fund Selector Asia. Manulife IM forecasts ESG bond issuance to increase driven by policy needs and increased investor interest. Targeted thematic investments, such as improved corporate governance, environmental pollution, climate change, water scarcity, and demographics, are likely to be used to focus ESG investment into specific areas. Despite the potential for sustainable fixed income investment in APAC, Manulife IM believes that there are three obstacles to overcome, namely consistency, with the lack of a global taxonomy seen as an issue for investors and issuers alike, the need to source different metrics for different investor groups, and the increased cost associated with this was another barrier cited, and ESG ratings were another issue, with Manulife IM calling on policymakers to regulate ESG scoring firms similarly to credit ratings agencies. Manulife IM supported the introduction of ESG classifications in the European Union and saw it as a way to converge taxonomies and regulations in the future. Concurrently, Matthews Asia, a USA headquartered investment manager, also released some thoughts on the role and direction of ESG in Asia, noting that investments in ESG can be a significant source of alpha referred to as ESG 2.0. Matthews Asia notes that Asia is home to some of the most innovative and profitable sustainability solutions in the world and has a high level of marginal sustainability per dollar invested, so an active strategy could be rewarded with attractive risk-adjusted returns. The active approach was also cited given the aforementioned lack of reliable ESG data in the region which was seen as an impediment to creating ESG and sustainability-themed ETFs. Accordingly, the more developed markets, like Singapore and Hong Kong, were likely to benefit due to the higher availability of data in those territories. This view was somewhat reflected in data released by Morningstar for the first quarter of 2021, which highlighted that a record number of sustainable funds had launched in the region totaling 19 launches and attracting net inflows of 2.3 billion US dollars across APAC, excluding Japan and China, a 28% increase from the fourth quarter of 2020. Singapore saw two ESG funds launched, bringing the total domestic ESG funds in the Lion City to four, along with an 89% surge in ESG fund AUM, bringing the total to 141 million US dollars. Hong Kong, on the other hand, 
saw no new ESG funds launched and a 7% increase in ESG AUM, bringing the total number of ESG funds and their AUM in the Fragrant Harbor to two and circa 380 million US dollars respectively. Across APAC, Morningstar's data showed that net inflows over 1Q21 amounted to 7.8 billion US dollars, excluding Japan, up from 5 billion US dollars in the fourth quarter of 2020, bringing total ESG AUM in the region to 36.7 billion US dollars. South Korea led the way among markets with available data, attracting 1.8 billion US dollars in net inflows and launching nine ESG funds. As covered in an earlier episode, Singapore and Hong Kong are taking different approaches to their use of ESG and sustainable investing frameworks, with Singapore adopting a more flexible approach against Hong Kong. On this note, Ignites Asia reports that Singapore's Monetary Authority is launching to introduce new ESG product disclosure requirements later this year, bringing the city-state in line with the European Union and other APEC jurisdictions like Hong Kong and Taiwan. The revelations come following a closed-door industry roundtable hosted by a SIFMA, in which an MAS spokesperson was asked whether they had any plans to issue any regulations on fund and product disclosures, similar to the EU's SFDR requirement. In response, the MAS employee allegedly stated that the regulator and central bank was, quote, actively looking at how other jurisdictions were dealing with product disclosure and could come out with a consultation later this year, end quote. Whether too much flexibility for asset managers is a bad thing in the ESG space could prove to be a hindrance to wider adoption of ESG investing. These inflows and overall ESG growth come as New York University recently published a paper which stated that the, quote, widely held belief that sustainable investing delivers outperformance is a mirage and the above market returns are actually achieved by exposure to so-called style factors, long known to boost investment returns, end quote, as reported by the Financial Times. The paper examined studies which purported that ESG investment has delivered outperformance in recent years, and found that the majority of over 200 studies published since 2015 concluded that, quote, ESG boosted returns, end quote. More recent analysis by Scientific Beta, a research provider linked to the EdHack Research Institute, a French academic think tank, disputes these findings. To arrive at this conclusion, Scientific Beta analyzed 24 ESG strategies which had been shown in academic papers to outperform. They found that while the ESG funds tended to outperform, three quarters of their outperformance was driven by, quote, quality metrics such as high profitability and conservative investment, end quote, at least in the USA and other developed markets. When adjusting for this, it was noted that of the 24 strategies, quote, not one has significantly outperformed when you adjust for this factor, end quote. The NYU paper also noted that ESG strategies, quote, do not offer significant downside risk protection, 
end quote. Whilst not everyone agreed with the findings, they may serve to highlight the disparities in ESG standards across the globe, and especially in the APAC region. Whether this leads to meaningful change and greater standardization of ESG standards and taxonomies remains to be seen. Now looking at Singapore, Transamerica Life, an American life insurance company, is launching products targeted at high net worth individuals in Singapore, joining Sun Life, a Canadian insurance company, which, as reported in an earlier episode, launched a whole of life insurance plan for high net worth individuals and ultra high net worth individuals in the Lion City, as reported by CityWire Asia. The products named Universal Life Alpha Pro and Universal Life Alpha Pro Century are derived from previous products targeted at high net worth individuals and provide a mixture of permanent life insurance coverage, cash value growth potential, and a no-lapse guarantee benefit, which ensures that customers' coverage lasts until they reach 100 years of age. Similar to the products launched by Sun Life, the products are designed as a wealth preservation and estate planning solution designed to preserve the legacy of the holder for generations to come. Moving on, job prospects in Singapore's financial services sector look promising over 2021, with the managing director of MAS, Mr. Ravi Menon, stating that 6,500 newly created positions existed in the market. Half of these positions were in technology and consumer banking, with asset management accounting for 7% and private banking and wealth management accounting for 9%. There is a specific need for 1,300 relationship managers to be hired across consumer banking, private banking, commercial, SME banking, and corporate and financial institutions. The large component of consumer banking relationship management positions is potentially due to increased targeting of the mass affluent investor segment, comprising individuals with between 1 to 5 million US dollars in investable assets, which may not qualify for many private banking products or services. As reported on previously, Citibank has built its largest wealth advisory hub in the world in Singapore, and DBS is aiming to hire more than 650 wealth planning managers and insurance consultants this year as part of their plan to double the number of financial planning advisors they have. MAS has launched various initiatives to ensure a pipeline of talent finds its way to the financial services and fintech sectors. Despite these, how the positions are filled and by who will be interesting to see unfold. Next up, following on from the previously reported APAC results for global wealth managers, Asian private banker reports that UOB, a Singaporean bank, has seen its first quarter 2021 net profit rise 18% year-on-year to 1 billion Singapore dollars, including a record-high 136 billion Singapore dollars in wealth management assets under management. Wealth management fees, driven by the rise in equity markets, rose to 239 million Singapore dollars, compared to 201 million Singapore dollars from the first quarter of 2020. Fellow Singaporean bank DBS also released its 1Q21 results, which showed a doubling of net profit from
from the fourth quarter of 2020 to 2.01 billion Singapore dollars, the first time the bank has crossed the $2 billion mark, and reflected a 72% year-on-year increase. Wealth management fees grew substantially to 519 million Singapore dollars, up from 418 million Singapore dollars from 1Q2020. This increase was attributed to strong investor sentiment and increased demand from a range of investment products. DBS is well positioned for future growth, with its strategy strongly featuring opportunities in the Greater Bay Area, as covered in a previous episode, and its new digital exchange, launched in December 2020, now exceeding assets under custody of 80 million Singapore dollars. As global asset and wealth managers increased their resource allocations towards APAC to grow their market share across the region, it is good to see that local players are able to benefit from the increase in affluence and wealth across the region as well. Finally, OCBC, the last of Singapore's three main local banks, also posted strong first quarter 21 results, based on its wealth management business, with overall net profit doubling to 1.5 billion Singapore dollars, and total wealth management income rising to 1.21 billion Singapore dollars off the back of investor activities and market performance. Wealth management income comprised 41% of OCBC's total group income for the quarter, up from 31% in first quarter 2020. Moving up to Hong Kong, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, Hong Kong Central Bank, announced that the 2021-22 budget would see the consolidation of the Pilot Bond and Grant Scheme and Green Bond Grant Scheme into the Green and Sustainable Grant Scheme, providing subsidies for eligible bond issuers and borrowers. The Consolidated Grant Scheme consists of two tracks, Green Bond Issuance Costs, which covers expenses incurred in issuing bonds for eligible, first-time green and sustainable bond issuers, and external review costs, which covers transaction-related external review fees for eligible green and sustainable bond issuers and borrowers. The scheme will commence on 10 May 2021 and will run for three years. Under the first track, Up to 2.5 million Hong Kong dollars will be granted to cover half of relevant expenses if the issuer, or its guarantor, holds a credit rating from a rating agency recognized by HKMA. Or, up to 1.25 million Hong Kong dollars will be granted to cover half of relevant expenses if the issuer, or its guarantor, does not hold a credit rating from a rating agency recognized by the HKMA. Eligible expenses include fees to Hong Kong-based arrangers, legal advisors, auditors and accountants, rating agencies, Stock Exchange of Hong Kong listing fees, or CMU lodging and clearing fees. For Track 2, up to 800,000 Hong Kong dollars will be granted to cover all eligible external expenses, which include pre-issuance external review and post-issue external review or reporting costs. Under the first track, the minimum issuance is 1.5 billion Hong Kong dollars, and for the second track, it is 200 million Hong Kong dollars, along with other criteria for eligibility. 
It will be interesting to see the success of the Consolidated Grant Scheme over the next three years, and its impact on Hong Kong as a centre for green and sustainable bonds and loans. Next up, Hong Kong's Insurance Authority, the regulator for the insurance industry in the territory, announced details of the two-year pilot for Insurance-Linked Securities Grant Scheme, signposted in the 2021-22 budget. Under the scheme, onshore and offshore insurance-linked securities issuers and sponsors that undertake eligible issuances in Hong Kong of at least 250 million Hong Kong dollars may receive a grant to cover the upfront costs of the issuance, with the amount of the grant being the lesser of 12 million Hong Kong dollars or 100% of total upfront costs incurred if the maturity of the insurance-linked security is three years or more or the lesser of 6 million Hong Kong dollars, or 50% of the total upfront costs if the maturity of the insurance-linked security is three years or less. The purpose of the grant scheme is to, quote, catapult Hong Kong into an attractive domicile for issuance of insurance-linked securities, end quote, with the goal of enhancing the sustainable development of the insurance industry in the territory and reinforce its status as a global risk management center, according to the CEO of the Insurance Authority, Mr. Clement Chung. The impetus for developing Hong Kong as an insurance-linked security center goes back to at least 2018, when it was announced in the Chief Executive Policy Address that a regime allowing for insurance-linked securities would be implemented following legislative changes. Following Singapore's launching, of an insurance-linked securities regime in early 2018. The relevant legislation was then gazetted in March 2020. The latest data from the Insurance Authority shows Hong Kong was host to 165 authorized insurers, over 100,000 agents, and 825 brokers, which derived 566.9 billion Hong Kong dollars in total gross premiums. Whether the grant scheme leads to a substantial growth in insurance business will no doubt be watched with avid interest. Moving up to China. The Financial Times reports that Chinese regulators will allow up to 150 billion RMB to flow in both directions via the Greater Bay Area Wealth Management Connect program, with individual investors limited to 1 million RMB each. Investors participating in the program in China will also need to have at least two years investment experience, net household financial assets of 1 million RMB or outstanding financial assets of at least 2 million RMB. Authorities in the mainland have indicated that Chinese investors may be able to open an account in Hong Kong without needing to physically travel there with regulators launching a consultation on the operational guidelines of the Wealth Management Connect. Under the proposed guidelines, qualified banks would be able to open dedicated accounts for mainland investors to facilitate investment in the southbound link of the Wealth Management Connect program, with mainland banks acting as the representative of their Hong Kong partner. Chinese investors will also need to hold household registration in the nine cities within the Guangdong area of the GBA, or have paid social insurance or personal income tax 
within the cities for five consecutive years. Investor requirements for Hong Kong and Macau are yet to be announced, though they will need to travel to the mainland to open their investment accounts in person, though it is hoped that the account opening will be simplified in future, similar to what was proposed for their mainland counterparts. It was not disclosed what sort of products mainland investors could purchase using the Wealth Management Connect scheme, whereas investors in Hong Kong and Macau are able to purchase mutual funds and wealth management products. Under the proposals, China-domiciled public funds will be categorised and those rated as R1, R2 or R3 are eligible for sale via the Wealth Management Connect. These ratings correspond to low-risk, low-to-medium-risk, and medium-risk funds. Funds invested via the Wealth Management Connect will be settled in a closed-loop system, preventing capital outflows, which will be accomplished through the bundling of investment and remittance accounts. Following the release of draft guidelines, on which industry players have commented on extensively, as covered in previous episodes, The industry will have until May 21 to provide feedback on the latest round. Banks in Hong Kong have generally welcomed the additional details, with the additional clarity seen as an, quote, encouraging step towards the opening of mainland China's capital markets and reinforcing Hong Kong's status as an international financial center, end quote, by one industry participant. As covered in previous episodes, There have been mixed feedback to the Wealth Management Connect among wealth managers in Hong Kong, with many expecting that the scheme will develop as a small river instead of a big wave, and some in the industry believing that foreign banks will be at a disadvantage compared to their mainland counterparts. Next up, Ignites Asia reports that foreign asset managers in China, including the local ventures of JP Morgan Asset Management and Vanguard, are joining their domestic counterparts in bringing their marketing efforts online as the battle to win the attention of younger investors heats up. JP Morgan Asset Management's venture, China International Fund Management, has reportedly posted over 60 vlogs on its WeChat account, with a recent one timed to coincide with an IPO of a fund, which was forwarded nearly 2,000 times. Vanguard's WeChat account appears to have less frequent posts, though a recent one showcased the CEO of Vanguard Investment Advisors in Shanghai fielding questions from a Chinese comedian in a live stream. During the live stream, the Vanguard CEO compared the use of robo-advisors to playing video games, an interesting comparison given that Robinhood, a US financial services company with an investment app that allows for the trading of stocks, ETFs, and other financial products, has gamified features for users when they execute trades. The founder of a Hong Kong-based marketing and communications firm noted that how young investors consume media is the driving force behind asset managers changing their marketing strategies, with content being created for platforms that these investors frequent. Over 2020, Many asset managers in China hosted live-streaming events, sometimes partnering with influencers and other online personalities, to increase interest in products. Several reportedly had audiences in the hundreds of thousands, so the potential marketing power of these mediums to reach new investors 
is something that many fund managers, foreign and domestic, will likely try to harness. How successful they are, especially with recent market volatility, remains to be seen. Finally, China's bank wealth management market grew in the first quarter of 2021, reaching AUM of 25.03 trillion RMB for outstanding products, a 7% year-on-year increase, as reported by Xinhua. The number of investors also increased to just under 50 million, up nearly 20% from the fourth quarter of 2020. This represents a return to form of sorts for China's bank wealth management product industry, as it regained ground lost since the launch of Superguidance back in November 2017, which targeted the distribution of bank wealth management products and China's greater shadow banking system. Additionally, Ignites Asia, citing a report released by the Boston Consulting Group and China Everbright Bank, notes that assets in China's greater wealth management market reached 121.6 trillion RMB at the end of 2020, just above the previous high point of 120.3 trillion RMB back in 2017, and before superguidance was implemented. The report notes that China's bank wealth management market shrank by 12% between the end of 2017 and the end of 2020, as regulators and authorities waged their war on the shadow banking industry. Things may be turning around for China's bank wealth management product industry though, with the space expected to grow by 17% annually out to 2025, when it is forecast to reach 53.7 trillion RMB in outstanding bank wealth management products. This growth is likely to be of great interest to foreign wealth managers who are partnering with the wealth management arms of Chinese commercial banks, with players like Amundi, BlackRock, Schroeder's, and JP Morgan Asset Management either having received authorization or in the process of receiving authorization to establish operations in this area. How the bank wealth management product industry continues to develop will no doubt be watched with intent. So, that's it for the week of May 3 through May 7. Let us know your thoughts in the comments if there were any headlines or developments that we missed that you think we should have included. From our perspective, the fact that Singapore's three local banks are also posting substantial growth in profit off the back of wealth management revenues is very positive, given that the global wealth managers operating across APAC are also reporting similar results. In Hong Kong, how the Sustainable Grant Scheme contributes to the establishment of a green and sustainable financing hub in the territory, along with the other initiative from the Insurance Authority around insurance-linked securities, will be interesting to see unfold. And for wealth managers operating in the Greater Bay Area, having more certainty and greater clarity around the Wealth Management Connect program is good to see as well. Hopefully everything in that will be resolved in the coming weeks. But those are just our thoughts. Let us know your thoughts in the comments below. If you enjoyed this episode, do give us a like, share, and subscribe for future content. 
If you didn't enjoy this episode, thank you very much for sticking around this long, and let us know in the comments which topics you think we should have covered. If you really liked this episode and want to support us, do check out our Patreon in the description below. From Three Lions Asset and Wealth Management Advisory, thank you for tuning in. We hope you drop by next time.